0: You're listening to The Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to The Strong Towns Podcast. If we're going to talk about original members of strong towns or original members of our audience, people who were there at the very beginning. Uh, there's a small group of people, but one of them would have to be the downtowners in Bismarck, North Dakota. And I have from the downtowners on the line with me today, Kate Herzog, Kate, welcome to the strong downs podcast. Thanks for having me, Chuck. Appreciate it. You guys have been here since the very early days. I did my first curbside chat out of the state with you guys Well, how did you find us?
1: Thank God for Google. Yeah, (laughs) Um, that's that's kind of how we found you. I had just started at the Downtowners. Don Cop, our executive director, had hired me, and I, you know, I really felt that there was really no way to learn this job, this sort of downtown management, and so we just started trying to find as much information as we could online. And your curbside chats, which is what you you know you were doing at the time, just happened to pop up. And so I got to say, you you've been a part of maybe one of the my most Embarrassing career moments and one of my most successful. <laughs> because the, the first time we we had you here, Don and I tried so hard to get a whole bunch of people there to hear this message because I think you know learning about um, good city building was important. And we had like three people there. And then the next time we brought you to town, there were 120 people there, and you really took off. And and I think people have really embraced your message. So it's been it's been a great time.
0: You have heard me talk about the first trip, right? I've mentioned it a, a bunch of times and just how important it was for me to actually have someone outside of the state. Cause you know, strong towns, I started doing this with cities around where I lived and then pretty soon it was a a statewide thing. And then all of a sudden someone from a different state, oh my gosh, invited us to come. How could, this is incredible. So even though there was only three, three of us there, <laughs> it was this huge victory for me because I got to write on the site like, hey, now we're doing this in more than one state. And, uh, you know, this is a big deal. It, it meant a lot to me. So I hope you don't consider it a failure.
1: Well, you know, we had the news come out and you were on, on our news. And then when we had you come, come back later on to our North Dakota Downtown conference, you know, from then Jonathan Holt and, and the Fargo downtowners and a lot of groups then were able to hear your message. And I think they've embraced it. So it was a, a slow ramp up. But um, North Dakota, I think, has really embraced you. Our downtown crews, at least, have really embraced oh, the yeah. downtown's ideas.
0: Well, w- you guys rocked it when I came back. And then, yeah, I've been to Fargo a couple times since and Grand Forks. And your governor is a fan. I've been hearing more and more from, from people in North Dakota that when they run into your governor, they wind up looking up strong towns afterwards. So he's, he's out there talking about it too. So, you know, North Dakota is one of these states where because I'm next door, I have this appreciation for it. But I think people around the country discount it as you guys have three electoral votes because we have to give them to you <laughs> and, <laughs> and you got oil, but that's it. And like, what is North Dakota? North Dakota is a great, is a great state. There's a lot of great stuff going on, especially in the cities.
1: And I think we've definitely seen a resurgence in the cities, in the downtowns It used to be, we used to call it brain drain here, uh, especially in the 1980s. No one's plan was really, hey, I'm going to graduate high school and stay in North Dakota. It was, where were you going after that? And it's only been very recently and a and a lot of this has to do with the work that the downtown groups are doing, I think, and the cities that have embraced the downtown revitalization that we're hearing from, you know, people in college or in their twenties. They want to move back because we have enough of those amenities in the urban center to keep them. And so that's a huge change in North Dakota. Our peak population was in the nineteen thirties. So <laughs> we're on our way up though, I think. It's been it's been really cool to see. I think the oil helped us helped our economy get kind of strong. But with that, um, we were able to kind of provide those amenities when the economy was strong to bring those young people and those baby boomers back to back to the downtowns. My
0: experience with Bismarck is not as thorough as my experience with Fargo. So I can't talk about what it was like you know, 30 years ago like I can in Fargo. I, I was there in the floods in 97. Oh, really? oh, yeah, I was in the National Guard, and we got sent to uh, – to Moorhead, which is right across the river, but spent some time in Fargo as well. And Fargo was not a great place in in the nineties. It's a spectacular place today. I mean, Bismarck, I think, is a great place today too. I don't know what it was like back in the eighties and nineties, but if it was a similar trajectory, the, the results have to be astounding for people.
1: You know, the one thing Fargo has on Bismarck a little bit is just that college population and that you know constant. Uh, resurgence of people each year. And in Bismarck, we're more, we're the capital city. We're kind of an energy hub, a healthcare hub. You know, our challenge is bringing people to the area. And as our city leaders have found out, recruitment uh, and retention isn't just about, you know, you have good schools and you have this and that, and kind of thinking about the Knight Foundation Soul of the Community study. It's about those little things, the nuance, the way it looks, things to do after 5 o'clock. And that's not really. That hasn't been the economic development model in North Dakota for a long time. And so embracing whimsy isn't economic development, or hasn't been, but it kind of is now. That's what we need to be doing.
0: I love the work that you and Don have done. And I know you have other people, lots of people, businesses and others helping you out. Can you give people just a sense of what the downtowners are and kind of, in general, the work that you guys do there in Bismarck?
1: Certainly. Uh, the Downtowners Association in Bismarck, we are sort of a chamber of commerce. We're a 501c6. We like to tell the chamber that we are sort of brothers from the same mother a little bit. There was an original commerce group in town, and then when the malls came through and we lost a lot of our anchor stores, uh, the downtown merchants decided it was time that they needed to organize and kind of bring the spotlight back onto the downtowns. And so in the mid-70s, they organized the Merchants Association. We incorporated in 1985 as the Downtowners Association. We have about 200 member businesses right now. We do a lot of work. Every day is different. I was telling you earlier that we're preparing for a a kid sausage stuffing contest with our German Days event. Um, The next day we might be working with developers on housing projects. So we work with our member businesses to do really everything in between from recruitment and retention to events development business education it's really kind of commercial district management in a nutshell
0: one of the reasons we're having this conversation today as opposed to you know some other time is that i got a series of emails from people complaining about or or queuing me into a debate that's going on right now about tax increment financing and the downtown of Grand Forks, I've not been a huge fan of tax increment financing, and we can we can talk about that. but I, I am a huge fan of you guys, and I, I wanted to have this conversation because I, I wanted to kind of explore the idea that TIF works real well in some places and at some places it doesn't. I want to kind of understand why it's working in Bismarck. I've got a long history of TIF in Bismarck. Someone sent me, and I wonder if, if you have a narrative yourself of how you like to talk about that part of what you guys call a renaissance zone and also the, the TIF stuff there in Bismarck.
1: It's been sullied a little bit here, and I understand how TIFs generally work. It's generally a project-specific kind of TIFF. And in Bismarck, we had a very unusual TIF. We obviously went through urban renewal, which was fairly devastating to our downtown. We lost a lot of structures, taxable structures. And so in the 70s, our city and the the other taxing entities started a TIF district. So not project-specific, but an overlay district over portions of the downtown that they felt needed to be revitalized. And so just like any other tax increment financing project, a portion of the property taxes, instead of going back into the project, went into this tax increment financing fund. And it had to be spent on things that were in the city's urban renewal plans. So it was more public infrastructure and things like that that uh, the tax increment financing district was paying for. It wasn't until the early 2000s that the city developed their core programs, which had like some facade grants, some subsurface infill grants because we had some big vaults under these sidewalks and so that was used pretty well. One of the the core programs that was funded by the TIF was a technical assistance grant so it offered architectural and engineering services to people who were trying to rehab an old building and just didn't really know where to start and wanted to know if it was even a, a feasible project. Really the rub I think with most people is that we also have a renaissance zone and it's kind of in the same area, uh, overlaid over each other. Not exactly the same, but very similar. And so in this Renaissance Zone, which is a statewide program, you can get a five-year tax abatement if you meet certain investment requirements in a project or a building in the downtown. And so we were seeing our property values go up because of the Renaissance Zone, because of investments made through TIF, uh, the TIF District and core programs. But that increment of that new tax that we were seeing was going into the TIF district. And so I think that was really where people were um, having some issues with the two programs sort of being on top of each other.
0: I've seen the Renaissance Zone stuff work in Fargo and have seen enormous levels of investment. I mean, I've seen them take out surface parking lots and build great buildings, take old buildings and convert them into office space and, and stuff that's really got to be generating a lot of taxes. So what's going on in those places is that the people making those investments are getting a five-year abatement, meaning that they're not paying the taxes or the taxes get returned to them for five years. That's how that works?
1: Yeah, they can get a five-year property tax abatement. And then I think, uh, you know, if you're a leasehold project, you can also get a five-year income tax abatement. And uh, what we've seen with our Renaissance Zone and Bismarck, so our statistics are we've had $52 million in private investment, 50 new businesses created, 458 jobs created, full-time equivalent jobs, and we've had 105 projects completed. So it's been really good for us in the last, about. it's been going for about 15 years. Um, we've also seen our taxable valuations go up $116 million just in over 15 years, which we think is just enormous for downtown.
0: Yeah, yeah. Give me some comparison for that.
1: Yeah, the starting point when we started, uh, since the Renaissance Zone started in about 2004, our taxable valuation, just within the Renaissance Zone area, was eighty, about $85 million. And now we're at about $201 million in total assessed value.
0: Does the abatement affect local Tax revenues is this money that's not going to the state, or is this money that's not going to the city government for that five year period of time, or is this money that's not going to both for that five year period of time?
1: The city still actually collects the taxes on the land um, and then the state is is not collecting that property tax as well. What we've seen is on average projects pay back their abatement in about five to seven years, and after that it's you know for the next 40 years, it's gravy for all the taxing entities. So we really look at it, any investment, there's going to be an initial investment, but what you want to see on the, on the backside is that you're making more than when you, when you started. And so downtown in the Renaissance zone, we've seen 10.6% increase in valuation each year that we've been in that, in that Renaissance zone versus, you know, two to 5% outside of the zone. So we're we're creating value downtown uh, at a much stronger pace with the Renaissance zone than, than kind of outside those areas.
0: How is that affecting the other properties around it? So, so not only are you creating new investments, uh, new buildings being built and buildings being renovated, but you, you have to have existing land and existing properties where nothing essentially is being done. Are those going up in value too more quickly or have you measured that in any way?
1: I think that the total valuation downtown is is also going up, so even if you haven 't done a project or or done a renovation, your valuation is also you know going up incrementally each year, uh, and so when people pay their taxes, obviously it goes up a little bit, but their building then is worth more you know should they choose to sell it so
0: <laughs> I realize that 's a fine line for you because people don 't like their taxes to go up, but i 'm stepping back and looking at this from a macro standpoint and, and what I see is you Having this program to attract investment into core downtowns, there's a certain tax subsidy that happens for five years. But to look at that property itself is kind of narrow. You really need to look at the whole district. And, and it sounds to me like even people who are not necessarily making investments in their properties, you know, they're paying more taxes because the value is going up.
1: Right. And their, yes, their assessed valuation is going up. What they've projected with our Renaissance zone is that by 2019, the total exemptions that have been given will have essentially been completely paid back. And then again, we're just. Printing money at that point. Yeah. Gravy after that. Yeah. And everything is an investment. And if you look at it as an investment, there is going to be that short-term pain versus a long-term gain. And so. We kind of look at it as the five stages of grief a little bit when we're talking about why you should invest in the downtown, because I don't know that a lot of people in North Dakota, we can really spread out with our development. And so I don't know that a lot of people in North Dakota understand that building in areas where you have existing infrastructure and trying to trigger investments there brings much more back in return.
0: The thing that has always astounded me about North Dakota is you, you you don't have any natural barrier. So the cities can just creep out and out and out without end, really. And it's hard when the land is accessible out on the edge and it's cheap, you know, you really have to have a strategic reason for people to invest in the in the core of the city. It's a situation we see in other places, but it's heightened there in North Dakota, and particularly in Bismarck, where you've got a lot of money that's been put into interchanges and highway development and frontage roads.
1: You put sort of the nail on the head there with Governor Burgum. He is uh, an investor in downtown Fargo. He understands really, the ma- again, the macro, the 30,000-foot view of a city, where you're losing money, where you're making money. He can look at it as sort of a straight P&L and say, we need to invest here or here's where we're losing money. Um, and so I think that's the message that he's been trying to convey. He's only been governor for, you know, six months, but um, he's he's really pushed his Main Street initiative, which really focuses on investing in the core, investing in talent. Um, those are the things that are going to bring us forward.
0: And just so that I'm clear on this, when, when we're talking about investment, you 're actually in the Renaissance zone there's no government money being invested right i mean this is This is an abatement of of taxes To me, when we use the word investment, we're also talking about risk, but there really isn't any risk that the city or the you know even the state is taking on here right The risk is all essentially private sector risk
1: right essentially that's where all the actual cash investment comes from, everything that's done through the city or the state is, is an abatement, like you said.
0: Right. All right. Let's talk about TIF for a sec.
1: My favorite three letters.
0: (laughs) Cause I'll give you my concerns about TIF, but maybe because I think there's people who hear about TIF, but don't maybe understand it and how it works. Could you give an example of a TIF project? Not, not necessarily the zone and the area, because I think yours operates actually more like a business improvement district. Let's talk about a TIF project in general. What what are the assumptions behind it, and how does a site-specific TIF project actually work?
1: Well, since we have the TIF district, anything within the city's urban renewal plan, which is our downtown Salbury plan or our downtown master plan right now, would be could use tax increment financing funds. So, uh, for example, we just did our quiet rail crossing at our three uh, heaviest pedestrian crossings, downtown 3rd Street, 5th Street, and 12th Street and that was paid for primarily through tax increment financing. So that was in our urban renewal plan, and that was a project that was paid primarily with tax increment financing funds. On a private TIF project, something that would run through our core programs, uh, I'm trying to think of a, a recent example. We have um, a very old international harvester warehouse that's about 15,000 square feet, and we have a fitness facility looking at that building, but it obviously comes with, some challenges when you're looking at a 70-plus-year-old building and uh, doing a rehabilitation. So the lessee can come to the, the core committee uh, and apply for some technical assistance for architectural, engineering, structural assistance to really take a look at the building. And before the city outlays any money in terms of a Renaissance Zone project or facade grant or something like that, they can really see if it's worth it. And so that's been an awesome program that has been funded through our TIF fund and our TIF district is technical assistance. And that, uh, anything from asbestos abatement to lead paint abatement, people can really see what the project is going to involve and if it's really going to be worth it for them to invest private capital and on the back end, what it's going to be worth for the city. So they can outlay, I think the maximum for technical assistance is about $8,000 um, but you're looking at a $500,000 renovation for a building that's really going to raise the assessed value up. So that's really how our TIF works. You can either approach it from a private side and go through those core programs, or the city can utilize it to do um, projects within the TIF district that are from our urban renewal plan.
0: Let me give you the three criticisms of, of TIFF that I, two of them that I get the most often and then one that is mine specifically. The first one is that this is a handout for businesses and businesses, you know, corporations, business owners, they come in and they would do the project anyway, but they know that if they plead or if they, you know, threaten to go somewhere else, Uh, They can force the city to do these tax subsidies and it's basically, you know, stealing money that would otherwise go to support roads and other investments and maintaining parks. How would you respond to that particular critique?
1: Again, Bismarck, North Dakota is very unusual in how we use our TIF. We don't have any TIF districts outside of the original commercial district. So, our TIF right now only operates in, in old mixed-use areas. And so we feel that you're basically getting mostly local businesses. You're getting rehabilitations of old buildings in mixed-use areas. So we feel that it generates more. We don't have any TIF districts that support any sort of big-box areas or any strip malls or anything to this point in Bismarck that I'm aware of. Um, they could, but they've not chosen to go that route.
0: Let me give you the the second critique. I don't know about yours, if this applies to you or not, so you can tell me that the, it doesn't. Um, Ours is very unusual. <laughs> yeah, yours is unusual. Here in Minnesota, uh, we will have people come in and do a TIFF project. So say it's within the city. Money that would then normally go to the school district and the county governments don't go there. That They can also be, in a sense, appropriated as part of this TIF district and used for other things, for infrastructure, for site rehab, for for what have you. In your TIF district, does that affect revenues that would go to a school district or a regional government or, or something else, or is it just city revenues that are affected?
1: It does affect all our taxing entities. And in Bismarck, our uh, Parks and Recreation District is also a taxing entity. So we have four taxing entities I believe before this original TIF was closed out, $2 million was going into that TIF fund annually. So that was the increment that was going into the tax increment financing fund to support either the core programs or those city infrastructure pieces that the TIF was was utilized for doing those urban renewal plan projects, like a quiet rail, like a parking ramp, something like that.
0: If someone came in and, and, let's say, rehabbed a building and improved its valuation, you know, 10 times. How long does that increment be captured? Is there an end to that or or does it just continue on indefinitely? How does it work for you?
1: Well, it used to be indefinite. And I think that was really part of the rub with people who weren't big fans of our tax increment financing district was when were the other taxing entity is going to see the the benefit of what we've been doing in the downtown and so a couple legislative sessions ago, uh, they did put a cap on it. I think old, you know, existing TIF districts had to be closed out within like 15 or 20 years, and new ones could only last 15 or 20 years. So it would be, um, I think, about 15 or 20 years if you started a new TIF district uh, today.
0: And that's, that's district-wide, not project by project?
1: Ours is district-wide. It's, we only have one TIF And it is that that TIF district that overlays most of the downtown. And we understand that is unusual. Most TIFs work out on a project-specific basis. And so what has happened recently is in order to get our taxing entities support for our five-year renewal for the Renaissance Zone, a lot of them wanted to see our old tax increment financing district closed out. And so uh, the city has voted as of the beginning of July or the late end of June here to close our, our 1970s TIF district, uh, starting at the end of July. So all that money is going back to the taxing entity starting, you know, August one.
0: Okay. So there won't be money available starting August 1st for that $2 million a year that was being spent in the downtown a sense is, is going to go away at this point?
1: It's going to go. It's all going to be returned back to the taxing entities. So the city will get, you know, four hundred thousand. The county will get theirs. Parks and schools will get, really, that increment of what we've been investing in in the last twenty, thirty years.
0: Right, right. Interesting. I, I did not know that. So the the TIF district is actually winding down, and it is okay. And the Renaissance Zone will continue.
1: Yeah, and we feel, you know, that that's probably a good trade off. We had looked at just the political implications of having that TIF district existing for so long it's been a tenuous political position for a lot of people and it's difficult to describe why you're investing in one area of town and maybe not investing in other areas of town I don't know that people really understand some basic things about city financing which is a your property taxes probably don't pay for all your services right. B
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a yeah. big one. No, I mean, I, I'll just say this and I don't know if, if you can say it there, but I, I will say it to our audience here. I mean, you, downtown Bismarck is subsidizing all this stuff that, uh, that other people in Bismarck are, are enjoying. So yeah, it's a, it's a huge cash cow for the city just from a pure dollars and cents standpoint.
1: And so it's really tough for our city leaders to, you know, on one hand, they need to financially make sure that the city functions. And that means investing in the downtown and having, like you said, this cash cow that really throws money out much more than it uses. But it's also a tenuous position to, you know, a lot of people think that those city commissioners are favoring downtown or whatever it might be, whatever language they want to use, because they may have investments in other areas of town. And so it's been it's been difficult you know, as we've become successful and as we've, we've increased those valuations, it has brought a lot of critics, um, to our doorstep.
0: How then after August 1st, will things be funded in the downtown? Will it it have to go through a city appropriation then like everything else?
1: Yep. It'll have to go into a straight budget line item pretty much like everything else. Yeah. And I, you know we're kind of okay with that, that old tax increment financing district going away. I mean, we want to make sure that the other entities, you know, can feel the, the positive effects of what we've been doing in the downtown and what leaders here for 25 years have been investing in. Uh, in the same token, it, it takes that straw man away for us. And so we can really look now at the full impact of what downtown is providing for the rest of the community. Right.
0: Okay. Let me give you my personal critique of TIF. I don't think this applies to you, but I, I want to state it and I, I want to give you a chance to respond to it. One, one of the things that I see with TIF is that it keeps us from doing the little things that need to be done and it keeps us kind of focused on big projects. So I'll go around the country and I'll meet with people who do jobs similar to you, working in downtown associations, and they will be focused on, we've got this big project over here and we've got this big project over there. And you'll look and like the sidewalks aren't swept up and the flower beds are overgrown with weeds. The little things aren't being done. And it's almost like TIF becomes this mega project kind of sexy thing we can do as opposed to the, the meat and potatoes, let's take care of business and, and, and make stuff work well. How would you respond to that criticism in the context of, of Bismarck?
1: Project-specific TIFs in downtowns generally can make their money back, and that's probably the best place that you could use a TIF. I think you're absolutely right about people trying to sort of snag that big fish. Incremental development is so much more, it's safer. It really has the ability to attract a lot more people and a lot more investors. Big developments are really hard to make function. And that's why TIFs are used, and Fargo's doing a Block 9 project right now, and they've used a lot of incentives, but they're just going to kick butt when that project comes online and it's going to generate so much more property tax than an empty parking lot. You know, the way that Bismarck uses it just in the downtown or had used it just in the downtown, the TIF is actually providing or will at some point provide for the rest of the community. If you're using it maybe in, in an outlying area, it's probably not gonna give you that boost that that you need the whole reason that you you know, you put the TIF in place in the first place. To me it's really where the TIF is used, that's what makes it either a good idea or a bad idea. And how it's used. Like to your point, if it's a gigantic huge project, that might be kind of untenable. That might be where you need a TIFF, but those small incremental projects are just so much safer from a city standpoint you 're really spreading out the risk
0: I want to ask you just because I, I think it would be interesting for people around the country to hear about the debate uh, that North Dakota 's had about paid parking because' it 's one of these like cultural anomalies i mean North Dakota newsflash is an agricultural state, but there 's been a lot of cultural change over the last couple of decades and One of the historic anomalies you have is that you're not allowed to charge for parking and that's a state, (laughs) a state mandate is a state requirement. Can you talk a little bit about the effect that that has on you and on the downtown, you know, give us an update on the prospects of that ever getting changed.
1: Yeah. So North Dakota parking meters are illegal. They were outlawed in uh, I think the forties by uh, some state legislators Uh, particularly one state legislator who had a a bad experience with a parking meter. And from then on, it's just sort of been, why repeal it? Nobody loves paying for parking, and so there was never really a lot of support to repeal it. There has been, in in the last couple of sessions, some support because we're seeing so much growth in the downtowns in North Dakota. The rub really is, and, and we didn't support the repeal this year, and it was really kind of the The devil was in the detail. We wanted to know if meters are going to be installed, and that's going to be primarily in the downtown areas because that's where parking is at a premium. Where are the funds going? And one of the kind of amendments to the bill, part of the funds would go to the DOT, or part of the funds would go into the general fund of the city. And we would really like to see those funds come back into the area with which they were Generated, not necessarily taking some money that's generated in the downtown and throwing it to the DOT to do, you know, an interchange. More
0: frontage roads. Yeah, right,
1: <laughs> right. We just felt that that was not the proper way that those funds would be collected. We asked them to clarify if the the meters were, you know, installed. Who would who would have a say? Would there be public hearings? And where would that money go? And there was just nothing in those bills to repeal it that really had any of those details. And so, you know, we felt that we didn't want to write a blank check out of the downtown parking meters for things that maybe be did not serve the best financial purposes for the community.
0: Well, I, I think Donald Shoup has said it most succinctly. If if you use it like that, it's just a tax. If you actually recycle it back to improving the places where it is applied, now it becomes a way to not only counteract it, but actually get people out of their cars too. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I don't know how it would go over here in North Dakota. I, you know, I think I don't either. Cities yeah. Should be, <laughs> cities should be able to decide for themselves. I think if they want the meters, but we're sort of stuck in this weird, uh, you know, it's a state law and has to be repealed statewide. And so the communities that don't want it can kind of block the communities that do want it.
0: Right. It is a weird anomaly. That just, just, you know, I mean, every state has its quirks, but that's one of them in North Dakota that you just kind of scratch your head like, what? Um, Yeah.
1: Yeah. We also call, you know, we call soda pop and casseroles hot dish. That's kind of our thing.
0: Soda is pop. So yeah. I, I, and casserole is hot dish. I don't even know what a casserole is actually.
1: It's so fancy. It's a hot dish.
0: Yeah. It's a hot dish. There's no doubt about it. When I was a little kid, we had Oktoberfest here and I don't know what my parents were doing, but they would bring us. And all, all I remember is that there was a big beer garden that I wasn't allowed to go in. Cause there was only like six. We don't do that anymore. And I I don't remember the last time there was an Oktoberfest thing here. We have this thing called Stammen Days or something like that. It's a Norwegian festival. You guys are having German Days. Can you talk a little bit about German Days? What are you doing? What is a Bismarck, North Dakota, German Days celebration like?
1: You know, Part of what we've tried to do in the downtown is events that say something about our community, that are unique to the community. And so... Uh, Bismarck was originally named Edwinton for about a year. And in order to trick German settlers into moving to the area, they renamed the town Bismarck after <laughs> Otto von Bismarck. Right. Which worked, which worked. Yeah. So we're, you know, primarily Germans or Germans from Russia in this community. And so we thought, let's, you know, let's, again, find that uniqueness in Bismarck and celebrate it. And so we launched it a couple years ago. This is our third German days. And we're really trying to get hardworking German farmers to just let loose and polka and smile and tell them it's okay to be happy for a few days and, and enjoy themselves and not work. So it's just a it's a fun event for us. We do a ceremonial keg tapping just like they do in, in Munich to open Oktoberfest, where the mayor taps the ceremonial keg. Uh, we've got kids activities. We've got a stein hoisting contest. All German beers, only German beers. All German food, only German food, and all German music only German music. You know, we're going to take that theme and we're going to run it all the way through the event. And I think you mentioned, you know, Norwegians, a lot of Norwegians in North Dakota too. So we may, we may be doing something, um, Norwegian here as well. Again, something that says that's very different about North Dakota and Minnesota is that we have those Norwegians, even though they're a little strange, but we <laughs> embrace them.
0: Are you welcome? You welcome them?
1: <laughs> yes. We're going to, you know, I invited the sons of Norway to, uh, Compete against the Germans from Russia for the Steinhoising competition. Really, so we're going to see if we can't get two of two of those guys to uh, wow help us out and maybe have a traveling trophy.
0: I may have to come to you know the Marone in my family is Prussian, so Ger- German, but I'm three-fourths five-eighths Norwegian. Um, my mom's side is a hundred percent Norwegian and my dad's side is, is like a fourth and it's kind of, it's kind of weird, but I'm, I'm mostly Norwegian. I would be interested in that. I, I may come, uh, you know, you have a little tug of war thing or something like that. Yeah. That'd be kind of fun. You know,
1: it's great. The Norwegians all their food is white. And so we've, we've tried to think about having, you know, an <laughs> event, but what will we have? It's like potatoes and lefse and, and yeah, fish. But we'll figure it out. I think we'll, we'll have a good one.
0: Salt is a a spice, right?
1: Yeah. Um. (laughs) One thing I wanted to mention to you, Chuck, and, and if your listeners out there have any ideas for us, we'd love it. But as we've worked through our commercial district management, we really noticed that the emotional component here has really taken hold. And, and I mentioned to you earlier, we kind of, we kind of throw it back to the five stages of grief here. People with, how we build our cities are sort of going through the anger, denial. We haven't hit depression here yet. We're going to have a tight budget year, and it's going to be interesting to see how everything turns out. But we're definitely working through some emotional issues about really coming to terms with how we've been building our cities and what that means for our budget. So if you have people out there who know how to deal with the emotional concepts there, we'd love some, we'd love some advice.
0: Well, in North Dakota some of the the thing you benefited from is that when the rest of the country was going insane in the early 2000s, you were not as insane. And then when everybody else started to go bad, you had kind of the oil boom. But I think the hangover now is that you've actually kind of caught up in some ways to our craziness. And yeah, the outskirts of Bismarck are as financially not viable as the outskirts of, of every other city in the country. So you know, Fargo is a disaster that way. Fargo is actually a financial nightmare, you know, s- surrounding a great <laughs> financially really strong and successful downtown. I imagine that the budget problems are going to continue to grow. I just hope that there can be a realization that the saving grace of a place like Bismarck is the great work you guys have done in the downtown. And like I said, the f- the fact that it is subsidizing everything else, it is a financial winner and I, I hope people continue to. I hope people recognize that there.
1: You know, I do too, and it's we, you. You and I have mentioned this before, and this is why having strong towns come to all these communities is so great. Is because it's really tough to push that message forward in your own community sometimes. You're you're not a prophet in your own land, and having other people come in and say that usually has a bigger effect. And so that's why strong towns is so important because you're able to to say the things that we always say. But because you're from another town, you have so much more credibility.
0: <laughs> right. Well, I tell you what, you tell me when, when and where and I will be there. I, I feel like I owe you guys and I, I love you. And I, I, I tell you what, you guys are smart. I, I really admire you, Kate and Don and the work you both have done. I, I feel like you are, if you were in Manhattan or, or DC or San Francisco, you would be celebrated nationally for your brilliance. You guys do great, great work there and it goes underappreciated a lot. So I, I'm happy to, to toot your horn and let people know that one of the most exciting places in the country, Bismarck, North Dakota, get there, get there this weekend and, uh, and enjoy
1: German days. Well, thanks so much, Chuck. And, and we, we just want to echo that same thing, watching you grow, having you come here with your curse. chat in 2010 was was a real high point for us, even though we only had three people there in a huge theater. But then having you back and and having people hear that message was just, it was really extraordinary because it's things that we've been working on that other people were saying. And you are a neighbor of us. You're in Minnesota. So it's great to see somebody in the Midwest really pushing that message. So kudos to you. Strong Towns has just taken off and it couldn't be more well-deserved.
0: Well, thank you. Let's get together soon and have a hot dish and some pop.
1: Okay. And some
0: lefsa. And some lefsa, yeah.
1: <laughs> I hate lefsa. <laughs>
0: what? Uh, I do. I'm sorry. I, I just don't. I can't do it. A little
1: sugar and butter. Put it in the microwave. Roll it up. It's yeah. Perfect snack.
0: Uh, I, yeah, I know. My it's just gr- a
1: conveyance for butter. My
0: please. It is a conveyance for butter. My poor grandma would not be proud of me if she were around <laughs> today. But I do like all the Norwegian uh, cookies, though. So I I do that mm. sweet tooth. Yeah, I mean, rosettes are like the greatest thing. Um
1: I love rosettes, but you have to get a grandma to make them. They make them the best. Do
0: you, do you want? I to, don't know why. I can tell you the secret right now. Should oh, I? Lard. Should I review lard? Yeah, to, I'm. I'm not joking. You, I.
1: That's always the secret, Chuck.
0: <laughs> I made them for years. Okay, so my grandmother, the Norwegian grandmother, passed away in in '91, and she made the the most. I mean, they Christmas was rosettes. They were incredible you know, I got married in 95 and I said, you know, I I really feel like we should have these as part of Christmas. So I started to, to make them and they were terrible. They were horrible. They tasted bad. They weren't, I did everything I could to try to make them good. And I, I finally, maybe after like five or six years of trying and, you know, people would take them and be like, Oh yeah, Chuck, good. You know, and then like throw it away. It was like, these were not good. And I finally got my grandma's recipe handwritten on a card by my grandmother. So I had the, the original thing and I read it and I'm like, this is exactly what I'm making. And I flipped it over and it said, you know, cook in lard. And I, I just kind of skipped over that. Cause I'm like, you use vegetable oil. Like, I don't even know. Can you get lard today? I keyed in on that. And I thought, I wonder if that's the deal. And, I researched it and lo and behold you can buy lard in just chunks and you put it in the deep fryer and you you could and oh my gosh I I took out the first one and I set it there and it looked right like it didn't it didn't look like the ones it it looked like my grandma's and then it cooled off and I tasted it and it was like this is it <laughs> like like kids come here this is my youth right here like taste this <laughs> so
1: I tried to make them once and it stuck to the iron. And then I tried to make lefse once after my grandma had passed away. And I remember her saying something about using old potatoes or new potatoes or something that had been sitting for a while. It turned out like the worst flour tortilla you've ever oh. seen. It was about as thick as a pita.
0: I will admit too, my, my grandmother used to do rosettes over the stove. Um, I've tried that because you, you have to have the oil within a temperature of like a 20 degree range. If you get it slightly too hot, you fry them and they're terrible. If you get them too low, they they don't turn out right. You've got to have it in this really narrow range. And I could not do it. Like, I don't know how this woman did this in like an old electric range, but she did it like perfectly. And I just, I could never do it. So I bought like a fry daddy and you just set the temperature. and just keeps it right there. <laughs> I'm the lazy modern Norwegian, but lard Lard, you just gotta you just gotta do it and don't tell people because they'll be like i can't you know i like it's too many calories i can't eat well, no just do it it's i mean you don't have to have 20 of them but you can have you know five or six
1: <laughs> yeah i didn't know you were that norwegian
0: uh yeah yeah oofta
1: okay. all right it's all right we'll forgive you okay
0: thanks kate
1: Thanks, Chuck. Have a great one. If we can do anything, please, please reach out.
0: Likewise. You take care. Okay. Bye-bye. You
1: too. Bye-bye.
0: And thanks, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build Strong Towns. OOFTA, take care.
1: We need your help. If you think the Strong Towns message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. Drasty times require what?
0: They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill,
1: Bill, Bill, Bill. That's the start. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating.
0: Who oh, made the city?
1: I like you. I like your vision of the of the world.